Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. Imagine coming from a family of 21 kids in a small remote village in Zimbabwe with about 200 people with no running water or electricity, and one day a snake bite changes your entire future, and you eventually end up a Ph.D. student in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Well, this is exactly what happened to my guest, Goodwell Nuzo. I am delighted to welcome Goodwell and to talk about his remarkable journey and vision for a future of regenerative medicine. Goodwell is a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Molecular Medicine and Translational Sciences at the Wake Forest Institute of Regenerative Medicine. Good morning, Goodwell, and welcome. Good morning, Valerie. How are you doing? Well, and how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my sincere pleasure. So, Goodwill, let's take us back. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? I grew up in a very small village. Both of my parents did not go to school. All we did was assistance farming. And 200 people, like you said, a village is very small. And all I knew growing up really was only five-mile radius. And that's all I knew. So, can you take us back to that faithful day that changed your life? When I was growing up, I liked going to the river to swim a lot with my brothers. So this one evening with my brother, we went out to the river. It was around 7 p.m. and he was in front of me. And I think he might have stepped onto the snake and got it ready for me. And then I got bitten by the snake. And then uh, he carried me on his back, going back to the homestead. And then my father, being someone that really believed in tra- traditional healers and all that. So what he did, he took me to the first traditional healer trying to get some medication from this traditional healer. So what they did is they tried a lot of different things. Uh, the first thing that they tried really was to try to scrap off the fangs from the bite. And the hope there was that yeah, getting off the fangs would be able to get rid of the venom of the snake. But that did not do much. So we went from one traditional healer to another, and that was about six hours in and almost like three o'clock in the morning. And my mother at this point, she's almost giving up. She's like, this, I'm going to lose my son here. And so we ended up going back to the house. And then early morning, by eight o'clock, my leg had swollen up so much that it was pretty much difficult for me to put on my shorts. And so they ended up carrying me, putting me into a wheelbarrow, pushed me into a clinic, that was about, I would say, five miles away. And at the clinic, unfortunately, they did not have any antivenoms. And so they gave me antibiotics for two weeks. And obviously, as you can imagine, the snake bite or the bite itself was not getting any better. And it was just getting worse and worse and worse. And you were a really young child at this point. How old were you? I was only 11 years old. You were 11 years old at the time, and you must have been in terrible pain this whole time. Your leg was swollen, and they all tried their best, right? Everybody tried the best they could, but it wasn't working. Yeah, so they tried to do a lot, and we were getting the antibiotics from the clinic, and at the same time, we were also getting different medicines from the local traditional healers. But all of that, obviously, was not doing anything, and I was in excruciating Mm. pain, of course. Up to the point that, at one point, I just see my ankle bones because uh, the flesh on top of my foot just like was decaying pretty much. Me watching this whole process. Mm. Oh, my goodness. So you were saying how you went on the antibiotics and it just did not get better. And so what happened after that? There was one person at the clinic. It might have been a nurse that suggested that we should go to the next general hospital 
because they were not going to able to do much at the clinic because it was getting worse by the day. And so uh, we finally decided to go to the general hospital, but then at the time we did not have any money. And so I don't know how my mother sourced the money. I finally got onto the bus and then we went to the general hospital where I got moved from one hospital to another till I got to Harare Central Hospital in 2001 actually. And so then my leg got amputated on January 4th, 2001. Okay. So here you are, this little kid. Had you ever been on a bus prior to this medical emergency? Oh, that's really funny you say that, because I remember in detail how I felt about being on the bus for the first time, because I had never been on a motorized vehicle before that experience, really. So when I knew that I was going to be on the bus to get to the hospital, really, I got excited. I think I actually kind of forgot about my pain that I was going through. It, it distracted about... you, right, okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's a so, positive, so... right? <laughs> Yeah, that, yes, that part was very positive. So that was the first time I was on the bus when I was going to the clinic. And then when I got to the, I think the second hospital that we got into, the doctors there, there was only one doctor that was going around for about two, three hundred patients. And he was doing that once in two weeks. And so I was at that hospital for two more weeks waiting for him to show up and so he could tell me that I needed to be transferred to the next hospital so I could get an amputation. So again, that gives you a little bit of a picture of how, what the medical situation was like in, uh, back then in some of these like local clinics. So here you are in this big hospital. You had this major surgery. What was going through your mind as an 11-year-old little boy? My father believed in traditional medicine. And so growing up in the village, that's all I knew. And I actually got to believe in that at some point, too. So then I get to the hospital, and then they amputated my leg. First of all, when they were telling me that they were going to cut off my leg, I thought they were going to use a chainsaw, or not a chainsaw, like an axe, or something gruesome like that. And so I was pretty much freaking out, Mm -hmm. right? But then, when I got into the theater room, what they did is they were injecting something into my arm, and then they were asking me all these questions, do you smoke? Uh, count to from, from 10 down to 1. And I, I remember going up down to 7, and then that's it, right? And then when I wake up, my leg is gone. And I'm in the hospital, and there are all these people around me, and I don't feel any pain, but my leg is gone. What is going on? And so at that moment, it was a wow moment for me. I could not believe how they could do such a thing. Like, how would anybody be able to numb the pain when they're cutting someone's leg? And all of that was really motivating to the point that I was really slowly getting inspired. And then even when the pain was beginning to come back, I would start freaking out and then tell the nurse that our pain is excruciating. And they would give me something and the pain would go away. So those moments, really, I think if I were to accurately say that, I think that's where... I began to think about medicine because I was like, oh my gosh, in the village, you have traditional healers that go into the bush for us to get to know the leaves or roots and all that. And they know the roots from their forefathers and all that. But then in the clinic, I was wondering, how do they know what to give me just based off of the information that I'm telling that I'm having some pain? So for me, that was really amazing. 
I think that's when you first became a scientist. All those questions you were asking as a little kid, right? You just became so inquisitive. It just clearly has never ended. So this had a lot of positives in that respect, that you were exposed to such incredible medicine at that point. So you went from sort of very old-fashioned traditional medicines to newer procedures and medicines at that time in your life. And so what happened after that when you left the hospital? How did your life change? About two weeks after the amputation, one of the therapists was helping me to learn how to walk again, the physical therapist. She was helping me to walk and she arranged for me to get crutches and then the guy that was also working with her was just asking me a bunch of questions and telling him all the things I do in the village and the school that I went to and what positions I was on in the class and my grades and all that stuff because I like to talk about that. And so from that, I think he was convinced that I was smart enough and I should be able to continue to go to school. And so he wrote a note to give to my aunt who was taking me from the hospital the day I was going to be discharged. And so this note was for another physical therapist back to the clinic that I started, not in the village, but somewhere in one of the small towns. This note was to tell him to make sure that my parents or whoever was going to collect me from the hospital would not take me back to the village unless if I was signed up for school. And so when I got back to Gruve, which is the small town that I was in at the hospital, this guy got me signed up for the social welfare in Zimbabwe. And then the social welfare was able to fund students to go to school. And at the time I was freaking out because I had been in the hospital for two months and I just wanted to go home. So I was not really having it. And so then they signed me up for school and I ended up getting a prosthetic leg. And then from then really things changed really fast. And then I moved to the city all of a sudden from being a boy in the hospital, from a village boy all of a sudden to being a boy in the city. So that was something else for me. Oh, well, you were telling me that back in the village it would have been a long walk and you might even have to swim to school on days when it was pouring with rain and that would not have been possible for you. So at this school in the city, I take it was a boarding school where you could be close to the premises of the school? Yes. The point you're making about the school in the village, that's another thing because I really wanted to go back to the village because I missed my family. However, I knew exactly what would happen if I went back to the village now that I did not have a lag. Right? Because back in the village, if you do not have a lag, life is very tough. Walking to the school was about a five-mile walk and there are creeks and rivers around the way. And so we had to cross those rivers and I wouldn't be able to swim across and even walking on crutches if it was oh, raining. So I knew that my life in the village was pretty much over. So getting signed up for school in the city was actually very good. And yeah, like I said, it was a boarding school that I was at and it was a school for the disabled as well. So now you're in the city, you're at the boarding school. What was the next step then in your life? So... At the boarding school, I completed seventh grade. And then I went to the secondary school in Blue. school is called King George VI Memorial School. And it's also another secondary school for the disabled. And there, in 2005, I got involved with the band. So we started playing music as a school band, just enjoying ourselves, having fun. And then one time we got invited to participate in a music crossroads competition. And so in this competition, they needed eight participants from each band. And so our band was 19 people at the time. So I was lucky to be selected one of the eight people. So that's how I ended up in that band. We competed, came second. And then from that, we ended up competing nationally. We also came second. And then we went to Mozambique where we met 
other 10 bands from different countries in Southern Africa. And so from there, we also came second. And our opportunity or price was to go to Sweden or to do a European tour. So we traveled to Sweden, Belgium, and Netherlands, if I remember correctly, in 2006. What an amazing experience. Yeah. Wow. So first time on an airplane? Yes. So really, I think my first time in the airplane was not as impressive as one of my wow moments to in the hospital, if I remember correctly. So right. I don't know if I have the time to share this information, but when I was in the hospital going from the village, I had not seen water coming out of a faucet. And so okay. here I am in the hospital, the nurse tells me to go clean up, and then I'm sitting in there for about two hours, and then she was like, what are you doing? Why is still not cleaned up? I'm like, well, I'm waiting for you to bring me a bucket of water. She was like, no, you get the water from there. And then she demonstrated how to open the tap and all that, and that moment, honestly, I remember, I felt so wowed. So compared to that, I don't think anything could top that. So being on the plane for the first time was amazing, but it wouldn't top that. But it wasn't the water coming out of the faucet. No, it was not. That makes sense. To have water at your disposal like that, we take that for granted in the West. It's a great thing to outline for us, right? Because it is an amazing thing when we stop and think about it. Sorry, Goodwill, I didn't mean to distract the story. So you were telling us that you performed in Sweden. You were in this competition with the band and other musicians. Yes. So it was just a tour. In Sweden, it was just us touring around Sweden. And then what we did there was we performed at schools and also local concerts, like even at places where people were gathering around. But most of our concerts were done at schools. And so what I got really friendly with some of the students and then some of the schools. And I ended up borrowing books from them. And those books really, I kind of really started to change my perspective on science as well. We talked about earlier that I had all these questions about medicine and all that. But all these textbooks that I got from Sweden, they were science textbooks. So when I went back to Zimbabwe, I was doing school, obviously. And so what I did was I was just reading all these protocols, the experimental experiments that were laid out in the textbooks. And I was like, oh, wow. I wish I could actually do this. And then what happened, someday I was just like looking for books, closets, and then I stumbled upon some chemicals that were abundant in 1953, and some of them had expired in the 1960s. And this is in 2000. And you were just still sitting in that closet. Wow. Yeah, so it was pretty much a treasure box for me. <laughs> so I found all these chemicals. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So now I can actually follow the protocols in the books, and then just do the experiment and see if that robot is actually cracked. And so I started doing these experiments. But what I did forget was the protocols were not telling you anything about how the room should be well ventilated. <laughs> and so at one point, Uh-oh. I was, yeah, I know. So at one point, I was trying to do this experiment where I was trying to extract nitrate from the cupric nitrate but then I was actually heating that with sulfuric acid and so you can imagine with sulfuric acid has a lot of hydrogens in there mm-hmm. and then cupric nitrate and all that uh, when you have hydrogen and nitrate and then with heat that's an explosion and so that oh, kind of happened. yeah so I almost burned the entire room or the entire building down I see but Okay, so, but so it, you it took the books from Sweden back and found the chemicals in the closet and nearly blew up the place. <laughs> but in the course of it, you learned something. 
<laughs> but anyway, so so then true. I ended up telling someone about it, and then they were like, oh my gosh, this is not good. We should tell the headmistress of the school. And then the headmistress was like, okay, fine. If you really want to do this, you seem to be passionate about this. So what we need to do is to find you someone that can be a mentor, someone that can help you with your studies. So she found me a guy that was with me in the afternoon to read or study physics and chemistry specifically. And then I ended up taking the exams. Those classes were not offered at the school. And I was just doing that on the side by myself. And so from then, I apparently was good enough. And so when I took the tests of the national examination, I did very well. And then I was not sure what was going to happen after that because I did not have the money to go to one of the best schools for science in Zimbabwe. So I ended up going back to the headmistress. I go, well, please, can you figure out a way for me? So what she did, she ended up talking to the headmaster at Christian Brothers College, and then they sent a teacher in the chemistry department there. And this guy shows up and he was like, well, I want you to show me what you do. I want to know if you actually have the kind of knowledge that we would require for people coming in. And so I ended up demonstrating an experiment which was just to extract iodine, how to extract iodine from soil. And really that question or the interest always popped way back when I was you know, just beginning to think about science in general. Like, how do people in the village back when salt was not a thing, when we couldn't buy salt from the store, how did they extract things from the soil? So then from the books that I had gotten from Sweden, they had all those protocols laying out on how to do this experiment. So then I demonstrated this experiment, and this guy was impressed, and that's how I ended up at Christian Brothers College. And then from then, uh, music was still a thing, and yeah. Meanwhile, you're building your academic portfolio, if you will, and demonstrating your enthusiasm and skill for it, and yet you're still in the band, is that right? And I'd yes. love for you to tell us how the music came together with the science and changed your life. So in 2007, the band was shooting a documentary. No, actually, I think that going back to 2006, we were at a concert in Blue Whale. And one of the ladies that was in Zimbabwe, she was visiting, she's American, she was visiting in Zimbabwe. Her husband runs an orphanage in Zimbabwe. And so they were at the concert. And then after the concert, she came to meet the band members. And she was like, so what do you guys want? What more do you want? We are doing great music and all that. And so I walked to her. I was like, I want to continue to go to school. And that's what I want. I'm still passionate about music, but I still want to continue to go to school. I think that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. So anyways, she's like, where do you want to go to school? I was like, well, I want to go to school in America. I just said that. I don't know how I got the idea of Roma, how I got that idea, but I just said that to her. So we ended up having to come to the United States in 2008 for a tour. And I got the opportunity to go to play. We were playing at universities as well. And so I really fell in love with universities. And then when we went back, I was very passionate about coming back to the United States for school. And so I asked this lady, her name is Eleanor. So I asked Eleanor to help me through the process. And so she linked me up with a lady that was working at the American Embassy with the education program. And so they were running a program where they have an opening for 30 spots and they help the students that get accepted for this study spots take the SATs and also to help them locate what universities they're interested in. And then, and so when I applied to that program, I got accepted into the program 
and the rest is history, really. Oh, wonderful. But in the meanwhile, what happened with the documentary, the music documentary that you were part of? The documentary won an Oscar in 2009 or 2010. It won an Oscar. Yes. So you were in the documentary that won an Oscar. Yes. And what was the name of it, or what is the name of the documentary? The name of the documentary is called Music by Prudence. Music by Prudence. Yes. And was Prudence a fellow student? Yes, she was a fellow student. All the band members were students at King George. Right. So your opportunity through music and traveling and meeting people and pursuing a higher education all came together, and you got the scholarship, you got the opportunity to study in the States. And then how did you end up at the Regenerative Medicine Institute at Wake Forest? Quite a long, I would say short story. Give us the brief version, because I want to talk to you about the science that you're studying. This is so important. Go ahead. So I was doing an internship in Boston. I was at school at Nazareth College for four years, so I completed my chemistry degree in 2015. But in 2014, summer, I applied for an internship at Novartis Pharmaceuticals. And so when I got the internship, I was there and just like starting to think seriously about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, or at least to contribute to the world. And so I stumbled upon the video, I think it might have been a TED Talk, but that Doratala was hearing about what regenerative medicine is and what they were doing here. And what really got me was when he was talking about building organs and making all these resources available for patients that do not have any treatments. And so I really was interested in that, and I wanted to be part of that a large group of people that are trying to push medicine forward. So in other words, you came across a TED video with Dr. Anthony Atala as the presenter, and you learned about regenerative medicine, and this inspired you to want to learn more about the university. Is that right? Yes. So after watching the video, I really wanted to learn more about projects available here at Workforest, and also what programs do they have? How do I get to the Institute of Regenerative Medicine? And so I started applying, and that's how I ended up at Wake Forest. And here you are now at Wake Forest as a PhD candidate. It's an amazing story, Goodwill, how you carved your path and you just kept asking those questions and forging ahead. So take us to present day. Tell us about the Institute and what you are working on. So the Institute itself is a lot of projects that are going on here. However, specifically, I'm working on a project that's geared towards providing a human-based model that would be able to, to be used to understand how drugs cross the blood-brain barrier. So this model that's developing right now is a cell-based model that the cells are derived from patients or from humans. And the reason that is important is because most of the medications that's making it to the clinical trials right now are failing because there are no similarities between animals and humans. Those medications are developed in animals, and so that's why they're not actually making it into the clinic. And so our idea was to come up with a model that would be able to mimic human physiology, and so that's why we decided to use a human cell-based model. And the, why the blood-brain barrier? It's because also for most of the drugs that target the CNS, they do not make it into the brain tissue because there is a barrier that actually prevents 
most of these therapies from getting into the tissue. And so we wanted to have a model that has the blood-brain barrier and also the brain tissue in order for us to be able to ask questions such as, okay, does the drug cross the blood-brain barrier? And if it does, what effect does it have on the brain tissue? And so that's what we're working on right now. Wonderful, wonderful. Do you have a dream for your personal future in science? If there's something you could accomplish in particular, what might that be? Scientifically, I to keep that as a personal and secret dream. However, on a global scale, I think at one point, I hope that I'll be able to be part of a team that is contributing towards creating therapies, to make these therapies available for people that do not have medication. So, for example, for people that have gone through what I've gone through, and then say, for example, in the case of snake bites, if another kid that's going to have a snake bite in the village, I do wish or I do hope that I would be part of the group that actually brought medicine to those people. I love it. That's wonderful. And have you seen your family all recently, and what do they think of your great success? I've seen my family back in 2015. Well, it's difficult for me to explain the success or progress because even if I told them that I'm in a PhD program, for them it means nothing. Even if I say that I'm doing science, it does not mean anything to them. So I actually have to think about some wise way to explain it. So, for example, when I went back, I was trying to explain this to my father, and it hit me in the moment that I could not explain this very well to someone that has never been to school, to someone that has never seen anything in terms of like medicine at the level that we're doing it here at W Farm. So knowing that my father is a traditional healer and he forages the forest to take all this medicine, so what I thought it was, oh, maybe I should actually use that as a way to explain to him. So I did explain to him that what I will be doing is trying to come up with medication, but the way we're doing it really is similar to you going into the forest and foraging and asking questions, okay, which one of these trees is actually going to help this kind of a disease? And so he kind of grasped that idea a little bit better than the normal way you would even try to explain that complex PhD (laughs) thesis to anybody. But I have to say, well, most people wouldn't understand it. It's so sophisticated that I think the far majority of the world would find it a bit overwhelming, and it takes an enormous amount of training. But you see a future where we could have better medicines, and the sky is sort of endless, and you are already part of a team contributing. And huge congratulations on where you are, and I know you have a really bright future ahead of you. And I just want to say thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you on this podcast. Thank you. Okay, so I would like to also thank Ginevra Kelly and Dr. Anthony Atala at the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine for welcoming me recently on a tour of their amazing facility, which is where I met Goodwill. So thanks, everyone, for listening.